Hi, I'm Jonathan Edwards, and I want to welcome you to the Jed Breaks Bread podcast. My goal in this podcast is to teach the truth of the Word of God and apply it to our lives that our orthopraxy might be as good as our orthodoxy. May you be blessed. Hello, friends, and welcome back to the podcast. I want to thank you for joining me once again. I apologize for not getting an episode recorded last week, but in the ministry, sometimes things come up and you got to make choices, and sometimes the podcast goes on the back burner for a week. But I'm back again and wanting to continue to record these episodes for you, especially since we are continuing to look at the topic of marriage and how to have a Christ-honoring and Christ-glorifying marriage. I will say that just via anecdotal evidence, the year 2020 has really put a strain on a lot of marriages, relationships. It has tested a lot of people's resolve, and that is because pressure after pressure after pressure just has continued to come upon us from external forces. And we Americans are used to, in general, freedom and a lack of interference. And we are used to being able to make our own decisions and do what we want. And as we have experienced governing authorities infringing and reducing our circle of freedom, that is very bothersome. That weighs heavy upon us. And quite frankly, it's not fun. It's not a pleasant place to be. But I would hope that as American Christians, I'm speaking myself as an American Christian, a Christian who lives in America, not not a American. I'm an American who is a Christian. Speaking from my own heart, this situation has helped me or enabled me to, in some ways, have more sympathy and understanding for our brothers and sisters around the world who do not live and enjoy the freedoms that we do. And it's made me want to pray for them more. And it's made me want to pray that my own heart would be willing to accept whatever God brings our way, for it is ultimately God who is the one who is in control, God who is the one who will raise up or put down a leader, God who is the one who will provide and meet all my needs. And by by needs, I'm not just thinking about my physical needs, I'm thinking about spiritual and emotional needs. And so this opportunity to go through what I would consider for most Americans a very long-term trial, even though in the grand scheme of things it's not that big of a trial, but, but it is a big trial because I can see the weight of it on various people to go through this type of a trial is profitable. And we know, according to the Word of God, that trials bring about sanctification. And we ought to seek to be sanctified in all that we do. Why? Because it brings glory and honor to our Lord when we act and live and think like Him. And I believe that's a pretty good transition into the topic today, which really is about speech transformation. When we talk about speech transformation, we're talking about going from 
having wicked speech to righteous speech. Now, you may say, Pastor Jonathan, I'm not wicked in what I say. Well, maybe you're not as wicked as you could be. But the fact of the matter is, the New Testament is very specific in the types of speech that it says are inappropriate and sinful and not honoring to God. And as believers, we need to do the very best that we can to make sure that our speech is honoring to God, that it is not sinful, that it brings uh, a good reputation to Jesus Christ, that, as Jesus himself says, our speech is salt and light to those who we interact with. And I think most importantly, or of first priority, let me state it that way, of first priority, we are to be salt and light to our spouses. It is a great gift of God to be married and to have a helpmate. And oftentimes, because of the familiarity of that relationship, we put down or we don't emphasize godly speech towards our spouses the way that we ought to. And here's why we do that, because we know that they're with us. They already know all of our worst flaws and our our worst attributes, and so why do we have to hide anything from them? We can just say exactly what we want. We can be ourselves, quote-unquote. But that's not a godly attitude. That's not a godly way to think. It should be really the other way around, that if your spouse is the greatest gift that God has given to you, then what you ought to do in treasuring that gift is to speak to your spouse in a way that is noble, is honoring to God, is uplifting, encouraging, that doesn't make any excuse for wrongdoing. Our speech toward our spouse should be, should be better than our speech towards the neighbor that we rarely see or towards our friends that we happen to see once or twice a week at church. I know from my own personal life that that's a struggle for me, that sometimes my speech towards my wife or my children is less careful, is less guarded than my speech towards people in my church or people in my neighborhood. It ought not to be this way. It ought to be that my, my best speech, the highest quality of speech, really my speech all the way around, from the private moments in my bedroom to working out in the garage with my children to how I interact with the saints on Sunday morning, all of that speech should be honoring and glorifying to God. As we consider this point, I really want to bring to your mind or to the forefront of your mind this concept of speech transformation. But this is a biblical concept. Why? Because it's found in it's found in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where Paul talks about, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. If you're going to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, Think about that, transformed by the renewing of your mind. That means there is a put-off and a put-on process that must characterize your life as a Christian. 
this is not an option for you as a Christian. You can't allow speech to be that one sin that you hold on to. It can't remain the hidden sin of the heart. No, every wicked word, every wicked speech pattern must be sought out and eradicated because you are no longer of your old nature and of your old father, the devil. You have a new father. You have a heavenly father and you have a new nature, one that is characterized by the Holy Spirit who dwells inside of you, one that was purchased by the blood of Christ on the cross of Calvary. So let us begin today to talk about speech transformation. And I want to turn to a really critical passage in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And in Ephesians 4, we find Paul contrasting the way that you used to walk prior to your salvation with the way that you should walk now that you are saved. He he characterizes the old walk as being darkened in one's understanding, as having given yourself over to sensuality to practice all kinds of impurity and greediness. But that's not the way that the Christian walks. You see, that's Ephesians 4, 17 through 19. If you have heard of Christ and you've been taught in Christ, if you know who Jesus is, then you are to do away with the old self. Now look, verse 22, in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. You see, I told you that Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 is Paul's process. It's his overarching summary of what should be occurring in the Christian life on a daily basis. And he references that verse here. He references that concept here. And then he's going to start talking about how to do exactly that. If you're to transform yourself, if you're to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, if you're to not conform any longer to the sinful world and Satan's world system, but be conformed to godliness, where do you start? I find it interesting and appropriate that Paul starts with our speech patterns. Remember, when we talked in a previous lesson, your speech reveals your heart. Your speech reveals the thoughts and intentions of your heart. Now, if you're a new creation in Christ, you have a brand new heart but you still have those old patterns and habits of sinfulness that you must break and you must put off. So Paul begins by explaining that in the renewal process, it starts with speech. Okay. Verse 25, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. The first aspect of speech transformation that Paul gives is that we need to stop lying to one another. This is, I think, more than just direct falsehoods. There are many different ways that we can lie to one another, and I find myself committing some of these ways unintentionally. 
you know, I get stuck in a situation and in order to save my reputation, sometimes I'll, I'll do one of these things. It's not a direct lie, but perhaps it's not ethical. Okay. If we're going to be, if we're going to look at this and we were to say, is this purely ethical? Is this absolutely holy or absolutely righteous? You would say, no, that's probably not that way. All right. And I think as Christians, we need to train our minds to think in terms of what is the most holy response that I could give? What is the response that honors God the most? So with that question in mind, let's start examining what it means to not lie to one another. Obviously, but I should still state it, obviously lying is telling a direct untruth. You're purposefully not telling the facts so that you can get a result that you want to get. Okay, You think that lying will somehow protect you, advance you, save you, um, or some other such thing. And so you, you purposefully distort the facts of the situation, and you're not being honest about exactly what happened. But there are other forms of lying. There are other forms of lying that are sinful that we don't also think about as this direct uh, violation of the facts. So here are some examples. Exaggeration. So exaggeration is adding falsehood to that which began as true. And there's a difference between exaggeration and hyperbole, okay? Hyperbole is uh, an exaggeration for effect to enhance a story, but it's obvious when you use hyperbole that it's not true and you're not intending it to, to be true. You're not presenting that fact as a true fact. So when somebody comes in and says, I'm so hungry, I could eat a horse, that's an exaggeration. But that's also hyperbole. Like the fact of the matter is you can't actually eat a horse. It's physically impossible. But you're stating using um, colorful language to describe how hungry you really are, okay? That's not the type of exaggeration we're talking about. Here, we're talking about an exaggeration that is adding falsehood to what began as true in order to increase or enhance your reputation. It's an exaggeration that perhaps uh, you add falsehood to what's true so that it seems like the situation isn't as bad as maybe it is in reality. Or maybe you're using exaggeration to make the situation seem worse than reality so that somebody will feel sorry and then come help you. This type of exaggeration is absolutely sinful and we can't tolerate that and we can't partake in that as believers. Another example of um, sinful lying is cheating. All right, Cheating would be lying. Perhaps you're not directly stating uh, a falsehood but you are taking a, a truth away from somebody else that's not your truth, okay? That's what happens when you cheat. Your friend gives you the answer in class or you take the answer from them in class. It's, it's a truth, but it's not your truth. So don't, don't cheat, okay? Um, you can make foolish promises. This is a way to indirectly lie to somebody. You can say, for example, to your children, I promise that we'll go to the park this weekend. And perhaps you make that promise hastily in order to uh, placate them regarding something. 
that they want right now, but you can't give it to them. So in order, and because you can't satisfy their need right now, you're saying, well, I'll, I'll, I'll give you something later. Like I will take you to the park this weekend. And then you forget that, you know what, there's a family reunion and you're not going to be able to go to the park this weekend. So making a foolish promise or a hasty promise is, is a way that we can maybe do falsehoods or communicate falsehoods unintentionally. Another example of perhaps indirect lying would be betraying a confidence. Another example would be flattery, you know, flattering somebody, telling them all kinds of wonderful things that you don't mean. Um, That's definitely an indirect lie. You could make excuses instead of saying, you know what, I didn't manage my time well and I didn't get that project done. If you make an excuse and say, well, so-and-so called me and then that led to something else. And then I just kind of forgot about it. And, you know, we've all heard those types of excuses. Those are, those are lies. So Paul says, lay aside falsehood. That's the command. Just lay it aside, put it off. Don't, don't deal with it. Don't deal in that currency any longer. So what does he mean then? Speak truth. Well, to speak truth means that you're going to accurately represent the facts. Speaking truth means limiting what you are going to say according to the need of the, of the moment. There is no need sometimes to say more than what is necessary. And sometimes in a multiplicity of words, we get uh, too far, too far away from just dealing with the particular need of the moment. We can say too much. Speaking truth does not allow for the uh, betraying of a confidence or a secret. And at one point in our class, we had a, an example, you know, of speech that was not true, where one spouse says, how are you doing? And the other spouse says, I'm fine, when it's clear because of body language and other factors that you're really not fine. All right. So how would you handle that then? If, if, you, if your spouse notices that you're not doing well and they say, how are you? Instead of saying, I'm fine, say, something's bothering me, but maybe we can make a plan to talk about it later. Then your spouse knows that something is bothering you and you have a desire to, to talk about it, to bring it up again, but now is not the appropriate time to talk about it. And that's always important. There are appropriate and inappropriate times to talk about various things. You must have communication. You can't just put everything off. But there are appropriate and inappropriate times to talk about various aspects of communication. Now, as you consider the list of things that we just went through as small falsehoods, okay, or tiny falsehoods, insignificant falsehoods, somebody would say, I think a lot of people in the world they conduct their lives and they just, you know, deal in that kind of falsehood on a regular basis. But as believers, we can't deal in that kind of falsehood on a regular basis because these little tiny falsehoods can have a very negative effect on your marriage. You know, if if your spouse finds out that you are telling them all of these kinds of little falsehoods and you're regularly doing these things, that just erodes trust when it comes to bigger issues. So as tempting as it may be to try to save face, 
or to look good or to um, do whatever it is that motivates you to do these falsehoods, I would suggest to you that you need to put off all types of these falsehoods for the health and well-being of your marriage. There are greater and more significant conversations that must occur. And if you can't get past telling small falsehoods to save face or whatever the motivation is, then you are going to be very frustrated in your marriage and you're not going to have um, a foundation of trust where you can really dive deep into big issues. So in marriage, that should be the most honest communication and relationship that you have. And you need to work hard to cultivate that type of honesty by not betraying confidences. You know, when your spouse tells you something in confidence, don't betray that. When your spouse tells you a truth that is hurtful, don't get angry with them and storm off out of the house or whatever it is that you do when you get angry. You need to listen with a heart of humility, a teachable spirit, and a willingness to have your feelings hurt by somebody who is supposed to be your best friend. You know, Proverbs says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. That, we think about that in the context of, oh, our other friendships and relationships that we have not in marriage. But let me tell you what, I've been hurt in some ways more by my own spouse because she's telling me the truth about my, my weaknesses. I don't like to hear that. I'm sure you don't like to hear that. But if she didn't tell me the truth about my weaknesses, how would I grow as a Christian? If she didn't communicate to me the areas where I fall short as a husband and as a father, how would I grow? They're blind spots to me. So as painful as it is to hear that truth, and nobody likes to hear that truth, we just don't. It bothers our pride. It upsets our sensibilities. As painful as it is, we need to lovingly accept that type of truth. Now again, there are a number of ways that you could present this truth. There are, there's, there's a whole issue of timing, what's the right time or not the right time. I'm not even talking about that right now. All I'm saying is, faithful are the wounds of a friend, and your spouse is your closest friend. So when they say things that might wound you, don't take it so personally or offensively. Just say, thank you. I need to improve. Thank you for pointing these deficiencies out for me in my life. Now let's move to another aspect of speech transformation still found in this particular passage here. So we're looking again at Ephesians chapter 4, and we're just going to skip down a couple verses, okay, to uh, verse 29. And Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29 says this, Let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Therefore, because of these words that Paul wrote, as believers we have an obligation to carefully guard the words that come out of our mouth. Now why is that? it's very easy to cut somebody with your words. It's very easy to say words in a moment of anger or a moment of, of rage or wrath that 
you didn't really mean. But you're angry and you're lashing out in your anger and you're going to say words that are unwholesome and are harmful, purposefully harmful to somebody else, namely your spouse. You can't do that. You have to learn to practice self-control with the words that come out of your mouth. It's better to not speak at all if you're not confident that you can refrain yourself from speaking words that are extremely hurtful, evil, or insensitive. I like how it's generic and specific at the same time, this command. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. A word that is basically uh, rotten. Don't let any rotten words come out of your mouth. Let the words that come out of your mouth be words that are fruitful, that are lovely, that are delicate, that only words that build other people up and provide good nourishment for them. Now, this is an easy, easy command for us to violate. I can't tell you the number of unwholesome words that have proceeded out of my mouth. I'm sure Jesus knows, and I'm sure that I'll have to answer for them on the day of judgment. But I tell you what, I'm sad about that, and I hope you're sad about that too. Let me give you some examples of words that I consider or that the Bible considers to be unwholesome. This is just based on the definition of rotten, okay? It's uh, in contrast with good. So here's some examples. Language that is profane or lewd. Sexual jokes and innuendo. It could be unnecessary or untimely criticism. It could be speech that is spoken with a wrong motive. Speech that is perhaps condescending in in nature, or speech that is intended to humiliate and embarrass other people. What I gathered from reading this verse and looking up the Greek word and trying to understand how it's used in other places is that this seems to be a catch-all category for any word that might not be beneficial to somebody else. And because this is such a broad category, it's specific at the same time. The breadth of the category makes it specific. All right, the breadth of the category makes it specific. What does that mean? Well, it means that there are a range of unwholesome words that you could speak out of your mouth, and you need to be aware of that vast range of words, and you need to commit to not speaking those types of words. All right, that's the very simple command. Don't speak words that are rotten. And you know what? As you grow in maturity, in Christ-likeness, you will find out that there are um, more rotten words that come out of your mouth than you expect. Words that I didn't, didn't think or, or ways of speaking that I didn't think were rotten 15 years ago, I, I do consider to be rotten now. And that's part of the maturity process. As you study the Word of God, as you grow in your knowledge of who God is and and increase in personal holiness, you just start to realize, wow, I have a long way to go to be like my Creator. And even though I've come a long way now, there's still an infinite distance between me and the Creator. And so we need to continue to commit ourselves to not speaking unwholesome words. 
On the other hand, we are to speak words that build other people up. That's what the word edification means. It means to build other people up. So what kind of words would these be? They would be words that are helpful or instructive, encouraging. They can be uplifting words. They can be constructive words. These are all words that you should purposefully speak to other people. And I like how I like how Paul says, according to the need of the moment here, it presumes that there are times when it is more profitable to not speak. So there are times where it's better to just not speak at all. And I think it's important to discern when is a good and beneficial time to talk. Most of us talk too much, and we speak too frequently, and we would do better to listen and to refrain our speech. Let's say that you disagree with your spouse on how to handle discipline with one of the kids. Would it be better? Would it be better for you to wait and have that conversation about the discipline at a later point in time? Or would it be better for you to have a knockdown, drag out argument with your spouse right in front of the kids and they hear mom and dad going at each other in a way that's not representative of God's holiness. We've all experienced that in our marriage, where we've had those conversations in front of our kids that we wish we wouldn't have had. That's why it's important to focus on what Paul says, according to the need of the moment. You know, sometimes, let's say your spouse does err in disciplining one of the children. Sometimes it's better to just let that go because the child probably won't even catch what happened. But if you make a big deal about it and you have a knockdown, drag out argument in front of your kids, that's going to leave a lasting impact on the life of your children. And you don't want your children to characterize mom and dad's relationship by those knockdown, drag out arguments. So if you disagree with your spouse, hold your tongue. Unless, unless, here's the caveat, unless the disagreement is going to have an immediate and urgent impact on the situation. Now, that's rare, okay? That's rare. But most of the time, it's okay. Just hold your tongue. Whatever happens, happens. And your, ch- your child will not be messed up. Let's just use that word, messed up, because of this error of judgment. And besides, you've made errors of judgment too. So everybody does it. So let's refrain from speaking at that particular moment, choose a different moment to talk. The purpose of all this restraint of speech is to give grace to those who hear. Grace is, of course, that unmerited and undeserved favor. How will these words that I'm speaking provide favor for somebody? How will they bless somebody? How will it help and encourage somebody? I really hate this cliche that I'm about to use, but I'm going to use it anyways. Truth must be spoken in love and must be spoken at the right time. A tactful word that is spoken truthfully at the right time will be much more effective than if you have truthful things to say, but you say them harshly or you say them at the wrong time or you say them out of anger or frustration. Wait till the right time to speak. 
Now, the result of all this, Paul says, when believers speak wrongly to one another and, and harm each other, not just in their speech, but in their anger, in their stealing, uh, and all the things that Paul lists from Ephesians 4, 24 to 29, that grieves the Holy Spirit of God. And so our conflict with our spouse grieves the Holy Spirit. Why? Because we're both united in Christ. We're both children of God. Let's make a commitment then to do what is right and honorable in the eyes of God. Let's be careful with our speech. We're going to continue to talk about the transformation of speech in the next couple of weeks because there's a lot of things that we need to say from the New Testament. God considers speech evidently to be one of the the greatest characteristics and character marks of Christianity. And I believe uh, that's because people know us by the words that we say. And so he has said a lot about it in the New Testament. So join me next week for a continued look at the transformation of our speech.